Section 7 of the Medici, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Adrian Stevens. The Medici, Volume 1 by G. F. Young. Chapter 4 Cosimo, Pater Patriae, Part 2. Cosimo, 1434 to 1439. Cosimo, at the time of his recall from banishment, in 1434, was forty-five years of age, and thenceforth became the acknowledged leading citizen of the Florentine Republic. But knowing well the fickle nature of popular favour and the peculiar temperament of his countrymen, their habit of constant change, their tendency to fall a prey to one faction after another, and above all their jealousy of any individual who seemed inclined to exalt himself, he saw that an immense task lay before him if he was to retain that position. It has generally been assumed that Cosimo was actuated solely by personal ambition, but he had other motives than this. Apart from all question of personal or family ambition, he desired to retain that position for two reasons eminently honourable to him. The poorer classes were ground down under a crushing burden of taxation due to the heavy cost to each individual citizen of wars so constantly undertaken by a state whose population was comparatively small. This evil he desired to remedy by so guiding foreign affairs as to make such wars less frequent. Again he saw that the same cause was severely hampering Florence's commerce, while, as a banker on a wide scale, he felt that if he could create peace, he would be able considerably to extend Florentine markets and increase the commercial wealth of the Florentines. Feeling that he possessed in himself the ability to do these things, it was in every way natural that he should wish to show that he could do them. Ambition of this kind is not a fault, but a virtue. But to do all this he must be Florence's leading citizen, no matter who might from time to time be gonfalonière, and in order to retain permanently this position, one which could never be more than tacitly granted, two things would be necessary. First, to make all foreign countries recognise that he, and he alone, was the motive power in the Florentine state, and second, to convince his own countrymen that no one else could so satisfactorily manage their affairs, and in particular their foreign affairs, so that they should be glad to leave all such matters in his hands. And both these things must be done in such a way as never to arouse in the Florentines that peculiar jealousy of any kind of authority which they were so apt to develop. Such was the task before Cosimo, one at which any man might have quailed, in view of the temperament of the Florentine people of his time, as well as the conditions of perpetual intrigue, in the midst of which it must be carried out. Yet, as will be seen in the sequel, he accomplished with complete success this difficult task. But it was not only in the political sphere that Cosimo won renown. Many and varied were the matters which he took in hand for the advancement of learning, the encouragement of art, and the assistance of charitable institutions. Before all else he was a deep scholar, one of those who loved learning for its own sake. He maintained a regular staff of agents, 
always employed in searching in the East for rare and important manuscripts, which became the nucleus of the great library which he founded. He instituted the celebrated Platonic Academy for the study of the rediscovered Plato, of whose writings he was an enthusiastic admirer. No scholar applied to him in vain, and the ways in which he promoted the cause of learning were numberless. Gibbon says of him, Cosimo was the father of a line of princes whose name and age are almost synonymous with the restoration of learning. His credit was ennobled into fame. His riches were dedicated to the service of mankind. He corresponded at once with Cairo and London, and a cargo of Indian spices and Greek books were often imported in the same vessel. To art he gave similar assistance. He was a liberal patron to the painters Fra Angelico and Lippi, to the sculptors Ghiberti and Donatello, and to the architects Brunelleschi and Michelozzo. He collected objects of art of every kind, and he made his collections open to all artists. No less lavish were his charities. He gave large sums for the rebuilding of many churches and monasteries, including the Badia of Fiesole, the Monastery of San Marco, and the Church of San Lorenzo, built a hospital at Jerusalem for sick and infirm pilgrims, and bore a large part in every charitable work undertaken in Florence. Such was the man who, in 1434, became the leading citizen of the Florentine Republic, and set forth on the political task which has been mentioned. In 1435, Francesco Sforza, the celebrated condottiere commander, visited Florence. During this visit he developed a great liking for Cosimo, and thus began that friendship between them which, in after years, had important political results. In 1436, Brunelleschi completed his dome, and the cathedral, begun a hundred and thirty-eight years before by Arnolfo du Cambio, was at last finished. This completion of the great work upon which four generations had laboured was a notable event, and a ceremony worthy of the occasion was arranged. Pope Eugenius IV was at this time residing at the monastery of Santa Maria Novella, and the cathedral was solemnly consecrated by him on the Feast of the Annunciation, 25th March, 1436. A raised passage, richly carpeted and decorated with tapestry, damask, silk and flowers, was constructed from the door of the Santa Maria Novella, and passing through the baptistry to the western door of the cathedral. Along this an imposing procession, consisting of the Pope, thirty-seven bishops, seven cardinals, the Signoria, and the envoys of foreign powers, passed from Santa Maria Novella to the cathedral. The consecration ceremony occupied five hours, after which the procession was reformed and returned in the same way. A tablet on the wall of the cathedral commemorates this event. Brunelleschi, more fortunate than Giotto, lived to see the completion of his great work and to take part in the above ceremony. The completion of the dome and the consecration of the cathedral served to mark the beginning of Cosimo's rule in Florence. In 1437, Cosimo set about rebuilding, at his own expense, the afterwards far-famed monastery of San Marco in Florence. 
this monastery of the dominican order had at this time in its community two men who will ever live enshrined in the memory of men as representing all that was best in the spirit of that age and as counterbalancing much that was evil giovanni of fiasol called fra angelico and antonio pierozzi called antonino afterwards archbishop of florence situated near the new palace which he was building its prior a man so justly beloved this monastery seems to have been looked upon by cosimo as a well-beloved retreat to which he could retire for rest and congenial companionship when harassed by the cares of state and the vexations of political life and with his usual liberality in all that he undertook he spent money upon it with a generosity which the modesty of the friars had to restrain the rebuilding of it cost him thirty-six thousand ducats in addition to which sum he gave it a large endowment he had a special cell set apart for his own use and thither often resorted for converse with the prior and others of the community he gave as a nucleus for the monastery library over four hundred valuable manuscript books and it was at his expense that the walls of the monastery were decorated with those frescoes by fra angelico which all the world now visits San Marco to see. Art, 1434-1439 The effect of having at the head of the state a man like Cosimo showed itself at once in the impetus given to all branches of art. As a result, we find art taking great strides during those first five years of Cosimo's supremacy in Florentine affairs, and artists at work all over the city whose names have since become famous throughout the world. Ghiberti was employed on his second pair of bronze doors. Brunelleschi was engaged on his two churches of San Lorenzo and Santo Spirito, besides several palaces. Michelozzo was at work on the Medici Palace and the Monastery of San Marco. Donatello, having returned from Rome, was busy in San Lorenzo and on his various works for Cosimo's new palace. The dead Misaccio's name was earning great fame, for by this time men had recognised his genius, and all painters were eagerly studying his works in the Brancacci chapel. Luca della Robbia was completing his marble screen of the Cantoria. Fra Angelico was beginning his frescoes in San Marco. Lippi was painting pictures for Cosimo in which he was to show the world the lessons which Masaccio had taught. Andrea del Cassagno, Domenico Veneziano, Paolo Uccello, and many other artists were at work in Florence, most of them brought thither directly by Cosimo to execute various works for him, while he was besieged with letters by others at a distance importuning him for commissions. Contemporary Historical Events, 1434-1439 to From 1434 to 1436, Florence was again at war with Milan, Filippo Visconti, Duke of Milan, being stirred up to attack Florence's territory by the banished Rinaldo degli Albizzi and his party, who urged the Duke to make war on Florence, promising to aid him with the contingent of Furo Siti, and by fermenting insurrection within the city. At length, however, in February 1437, 
Florence gained a victory over the forces of Milan at the Battle of Barga, which for a time put a stop to Milan's efforts, whereupon Florence again attacked Lucca, but without any success. Milan, however, renewed the war in 1438, and it dragged on with varying success for several years without definite result. In the year 1437, the Emperor Sigismund died, and immediately upon this, Pope Eugenius IV came to an open breach with the Council of Baal, and summoned a fresh council to meet in Italy, the place chosen being Ferrara. Its main object was to consider proposals made at this time by the Eastern Emperor. The Emperor John Palaiologos, following the example of his father and grandfather, proposed making a personal visit to the West to solicit help against the Turks to save Constantinople, which must otherwise fall. The Pope invited him, together with the Patriarch and bishops of the Eastern Church, to a conference, holding out hopes of such aid if the breach between the churches of the East and the West could be healed. Upon this action on the Pope's part of convening on his own authority a fresh council to meet in Italy, a step he had never been permitted to effect so long as the Emperor Sigismund lived, the Council of Baal, refusing to be thus broken up, declared Pope Eugenius deposed. But the feeling of Europe was against the creation of another schism, and by degrees the Council of Baal dwindled away and came to an end, after having sat for eight years and effected practically nothing towards that reformation of the Church for which it had been assembled. Thus again did the last reforming council, for it was the last, fail as completely as the two which had preceded it. Meanwhile, the Emperor John Paleologus and his retinue, together with the Patriarch of Constantinople, Joseph, and a numerous body of bishops and theologians, sailed from Constantinople, and in due time arrived at Venice. The Emperor was received with great pomp by Doge Francesco Foscari, and entertained at Venice for a month, after which he proceeded to Ferrara, where Pope Eugenius having also arrived, the Council began its sittings, 5th of January, 1438. Cosimo, in that task which has been mentioned, of gradually bringing foreign nations to recognise in him the motive power of the Florentine state, and also gradually convincing his countrymen that their interests were best served by leaving foreign affairs to him, had had to exercise much patience. He had a matter to effect which necessarily moved but slowly, and during the first few years he had been forced to be content with a very partial control, and often been obliged to acquiesce in action which he was as yet without the power to direct as he would wish. But by the end of the year 1438, he was beginning to have this power, foreign affairs being more and more left to him to manage in his own way. And he now took his first independent step, one which had very important results to Florence. He proceeded to Ferrara, where the council between the Eastern and Western churches had been sitting for nearly a year, and so used his influence with Pope Eugenius IV that he got the council transferred to Florence whereby he obtained for his city increased political influence, brought to it much-added trade, and secured for it additional advantages in the advancement of the cause of learning. 
Accordingly, the council removed in February 1439 from Ferrara to Florence, which thus became the centre of interest in this great historical event. The Council of Florence, 1439 This council is one of the most interesting assemblages of this kind that ever took place, a gathering which included an emperor of the East and his retinue, a patriarch of Constantinople, the principal authorities of the Eastern Church, a Pope of Rome, the principal authorities of the Western Church, and all the most learned men of both East and West had never before been seen. Moreover, it was the last occasion on which such an assemblage was possible. Fourteen years later, the fall of Constantinople swept away all that formed its peculiar interest, making it impossible for such a gathering ever to occur again. This occasion gave Cosimo a great opportunity, both in the political sphere and with regard to the cause of learning. Nor did he allow the cost of entertaining these distinguished visitors to fall upon the state, but made them all his own guests, an action which gained him universal commendation. Residences were provided for them such as they could not have obtained in any other city. The Patriarch of Constantinople was lodged in the Farantini Palace in the Borgo Pinti, the Pope and his suite in the extensive range of buildings at that time attached to Santa Maria Novella, while to the Emperor and his retinue were given the whole of their Peruzzi palaces, then surrounding the Piazza del Peruzzi, a group of palaces in which the Eastern Emperor and his suite were more splendidly lodged than they could have been in the dwelling of any prince in Europe. The council began its sittings on the 2nd of March. It sat in the cathedral, beneath Brunelleschi's glorious dome, at that time the wonder of Italy, and worthy to be first used on so unique an occasion. This gathering gave an immense impetus to what was beginning to be called the New Learning. It brought to Florence the most learned churchmen of Eastern Christendom, such as Bassarion, Bishop of Nicaea, and also the most learned scholars of the East, such as Gemistos Plethon, whom Cosimo induced to settle permanently at Florence. It brought many rare manuscripts, most of which found their way into Cosimo's library, and above all it created personal contact and friendliness destined to have large results when a few years later this Greek learning should find itself driven from its home in Constantinople. The effect of all this was to advance Florence still further on that path of unearthing the long-buried literature of the past, on which Cosimo's efforts had already been long engaged. And this new learning, among many results which it was to have in the future, was to have one result of which men little dreamed, and least of all those most occupied in fostering the cause of learning for it was destined in time to produce that great convulsion extending over all Europe, which we know as the Reformation. The new learning operated in two different ways to produce this result. First, in its work of increasing a knowledge of the ancient literature, it opened up large tracts of history till then scarcely known. It made scholars acquainted with writings belonging to the centuries preceding the Dark Period before the time of Charlemagne, writings hitherto accessible, if at all, 
only to ecclesiastics, and able to be read only by a few even of the latter. A large number of these writings referred to church matters, and had been written by eminent bishops of that period, and these soon disclosed to scholars that during at least six centuries of the church's earliest life, its constitution had been very different from what they now saw it, and with no supremacy of one see over all others, while such writings also made them acquainted with the proceedings of the six great general councils of the church, which had taken place in those centuries, some of which councils had given decisions bearing on this very point. And to this new knowledge of the history of the church, the gathering in Florence added considerably, for it enabled the dignitaries of the Eastern Church to converse face to face and in their own language with inquirers on such subjects belonging to the West. And since the Eastern Church prided itself on never deviating by one hair's breadth from what was held at the beginning, and since the special point upon which the discussions of the council were taking place was this very one of the claim of the Church of Rome to a supremacy which the Eastern Church maintained did not exist at the beginning, the Eastern bishops and theologians gathered at Florence would be certain to corroborate any discoveries on the above point which the new learning might reveal to the eager scholars of Florence. And what scholars learnt in one generation all mankind would, through them, learn in the next. Pope Eugenius, therefore, in bringing the bishops and theologians of the Eastern Church into contact with the hotbed of learning which was growing up in Florence, had done the most fatal thing he could do to the cause of the papacy. Moreover, the time was soon to come when one of these scholars of the Renaissance, poring in some dim library over the documents of the 8th century, would make the amazing discovery that the so-called Donation of Constantine and the celebrated Decretals, now known as the Forged Decretals, upon which the whole claim of the See of Rome to a supremacy had been based, were nothing less than a series of immense forgeries. As the general result of all this, the new learning, which now received so strong an impetus, was bound as soon as it should spread to Germany and England, and as soon as the invention of printing should come to aid it in doing so, to produce the Reformation. The process would take time, but the effect was certain. Where the councils of Pisa, Constance and Baal had failed, the new learning would assuredly not fail. It was a train of gunpowder laid in an ever-widening circle from Florence as a centre though the man was not yet born, whose hand would, eighty years later, far away in Germany, eventually set fire to the train. The second way in which the new learning tended to the same result was of a different kind. It gave a strong impulse towards the study of Plato and other non-Christian thinkers of the classical age, and a tendency to look at all religions from their standpoint. And here also this gathering in Florence had much effect. We are told that Cosimo, always a great admirer of Plato's philosophy, formed the idea of his celebrated Platonic Academy from conversing with the Greek scholar Plethon, the most learned of the Greeks who came to the council. This famous academy tended to create a sceptical spirit, and though many of its members made endeavours to reconcile Platonism and Christianity, 
yet its general tendency was against the existing order of things in religion. Its influence became, later on, very widespread, and Simmons says that it would be impossible to overestimate the influence upon European thought which this Platonic Academy came to exercise about the time of the Reformation. In Italy, through Marsilio Ficino and Pico della Mirandola, and in Germany through Reuchlin and his pupil Melanchthon. This great gathering of 1439 in Florence had its effect also on art. We are often inclined to wonder where such painters as Fra Angelico, Benozzo Cozzoli and Gentile da Fabriano got the idea of the gorgeous robes and strange-looking headdresses which we see in their pictures of Eastern subjects, it was all taken direct from the life of Florence of this year. During that summer, the inhabitants of Florence saw a perpetual succession of grand processions and imposing functions in which these visitors from the East appeared in every kind of magnificent and strange costume. Vespasiano da Bistici and other writers of the time dilate upon their rich silken robes, heavy with gold, and their fantastic-looking headdresses, regarded with deep interest by the learned on account of their ancient character, and the painters reproduce these before us in pictorial records, which are valuable to us on that very account, and because this was the last occasion on which these costumes were destined to appear. As regards the objects with which the Council of Florence was assembled, no results followed. The venerable Patriarch of Constantinople, Joseph, died in Florence one month before the council came to an end. After his death, an agreement between the Greek and Latin churches was made by the council and published with much ostentation by the Pope. But the basis of it was that submission of the Eastern Church to the Church of Rome, which had been a name of the papacy ever since the 10th century, and the failure of any agreement from that standpoint was a foregone conclusion. The emperor, on the termination of the council, returned at once to Constantinople, and as soon as the terms of the agreement he had made became known, it was violently repudiated by the entire population, and a tumult so great arose that the agreement made at Florence was forthwith dropped and never heard of again. Thus the emperor, John Palaiologos, the third in succession to strive to get help from the west to save Constantinople, was no more successful than his father and grandfather had been. It was evidently vain to hope that the nations of Europe could be induced to lay aside their mutual dissensions, even to protect themselves from a danger which threatened them all, and the days of the great capital of the eastern half of the Roman Empire, which had blocked the path of Mohammedan conquest for eight hundred years, were now plainly numbered. End of section 7